It's Wednesday, August 31st. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Million Dollar Portfolio and Supernova, Simon Erickson. Happy last day of August. Ooh, what a milestone, Chris. <laughs> Summer's going out with a bang here in the D.C. area. Yes, which means it's going to start getting cold again very soon, I believe. Yeah, no, it's not. Not soon. <laughs> not, not soon. Um, last time you were in the studio, we talked about Uber, and we put the word out to our listeners, our dozens of listeners, saying, hey, if you have thoughts on Uber, drop us an email. MarketFullerAidFool.com is our email address. And once again, proof that our listeners just rock. Our listeners are amazing. We got a bunch of email uh, reacting to the business of Uber, and so we're going to get to some of those. And I think last week, what we were talking about was this uh, challenge, essentially, to Uber as the next great public company. As we start to get more numbers out of Uber, and we find out that in the first half of 2016, they lost over a billion dollars. And so it's like, wait a minute, is it worth $66 billion, as some have said? And this was best summed up by one of our listeners, Jennifer Ryder, who wrote, I'm taking an Uber, I'm taking an Uber tonight for sure. How have they lost money? And that's, you know, I think that's, she's not alone. I think there are a lot of people who just either heard our episode or saw the news somewhere else and thought, wait a minute, how are they not making money hand over fist? Right. It's a valid question. And, and, and you're right, Chris. First of all, thank you. We got a phenomenal response from all of our, our dozens of listeners. This is really cool to see all the emails coming and everyone's thinking. Uh, Jennifer, your question's a great one of how does this company that has really no in the ground assets, um, doesn't have to pay for the cars, you know, has to pay the drivers, but is still getting a good cut of, of every one of those, how is it losing $4 billion over the, its lifespan? And the answer to that is is really Uber has got a ton of upfront costs they're paying right now. Um, one of the largest is for the app development itself. Uber is trying to be the infrastructure provider and, and develop all of the software, including the map software, um, for running the app itself. On top of that, they're trying to market the heck out of their Uber app because of a lot of competition they're having from, from Didi in China, or that they were having from Didi in China, and then from Lyft here in the United States. So they're trying to get um, this to be the go to site that people are booking off of. And then on top of that, Chris, they've got a lot of hidden costs too. They've got legal fees related to uh, some payouts and lawsuits with the drivers that they had um, recently, and then also lobbying costs. I mean, this is not easy. Uh, even just in the United States, going state by state and making sure that you're following all the rules of those states uh, and that you can do business in them. But Uber's trying to be a global phenomenon, too. It's trying to The reason you would make money on this investment is you have to scale really quickly. And apparently, that's not so cheap to be a global brand that, that scales at that kind of magnitude. One of the things we asked listeners was, hey, if this was a stock, would you buy, sell, or hold it? Uh, and as you said, we got very detailed analysis from a lot of listeners. Uh, Sam Muffley uh, wrote that I think it's a long term buy, at least twenty years in the future, and just sort of laid out the pros and cons, but being very clear about the fact that look, this this is an investment that, at least in Sam's mind, is going to take. A couple of decades to really pay off in a big way. Uh, John Chespro, one of our listeners, went through the numbers of being a driver right. and just saying, "Look, if you're a driver, this is what you're paying for gas per mile. This is the cost of depreciation, and just sort of coming at it from the from the 
uh, for lack of a better word, the supplier side. Like, hey, if you're a driver, this isn't necessarily the uh, the sweetest gig in the world, or certainly the most profitable. And um, Andrew Finn, who is uh, the co-founder of the site Wait But Why, uh, he's also the CEO at Arbor Bridge Group, which is, um, I think, educational consulting like SAT uh, prep and, and that sort of thing. Um, uh, sent us a link to something he had written back in April uh, that sort of, I thought, very nicely crystallized a lot of what some of our other listeners were getting at. Uh, an article that he wrote entitled "I Don't Think Uber Is Actually a Great Business Yet," and and got it. And one of the things he touched on, and I'm curious what you think of what he wrote. But one of the things that he touched on, which I hadn't really thought of before, is. If you just look at the media coverage of Uber, certainly going th- through the spring of this year, it's taken as a given yeah. that the business is perfect. Right. And and Andrew's like, wait, let's pump the brakes for a second because as investors, we we, we it should give us pause anytime. Absolutely, everyone is saying. Well, whatever you think of their ethics or the way they're disrupting the unions, or you know, their business is perfect. And it's like, wait a minute, is it? Because <laughs> it doesn't really look like it is perfect. Well, and and to set the scene for this too, I, I like that he pointed out in this article it was very well written that it almost seems like there's just this hoorah, unanimously bullish sentiment for Uber right now. Seems like yes, it's worth it's worth sixty eight billion dollars right now as a private company, but it's probably worth somewhere like five hundred billion dollars in the future, right? But you start looking um, a little closer at the business, and you see, you know, hey, there really is some risks um, that haven't been clearly defined yet by much of the financial media. Um, Uber is providing the, the the technology and the software that's in the middle of this platform between riders and drivers. Riders obviously trying to get the lowest fare possible. Um, drivers trying to get the highest cut possible. And so, how does that look for Uber, who is also trying to maximize the returns for their investors, mostly venture capitalists at this point? But how do you how do you work all of that out? How do you how do you settle that equation amidst rising competition from rivals, amidst regulations that are just now understanding ride sharing? And is this in fact a company that's that's worth several x multiples for a venture capitalist that's investing a seventy billion dollar valuation today? And I thought it was a, it was a well presented bear case to a story that that has been almost universally, like we said, um, a bullish at this point. And when you start to look at Uber and the competitive landscape, obviously taxi cabs as a group are in there. Lyft is in there, and I think up until this point, people have looked at it just in terms of those two companies. And yet, this week comes the news. From a little company we like to call Alphabet, uh, um, headline in the Wall Street Journal: Google takes on Uber with new rideshare service, and this is something that they are testing out in San Francisco. And uh, one of the things you can do if you're Google and you've got a machine in the back of your warehouse that prints money in terms of advertising, is you can look at a ride. You can look at going into any new industry, and in, unfortunately for Uber, they're looking at this industry and saying, "You know what? We we can offer this at cheaper rates." And when you're going against Google, that normally gets you a little shaky, right? Uh, Google has got 
Deep Pockets doesn't need to make any money off of this. They're actually targeting consumers, I'm sorry, commuters in the San Francisco area right now that are looking to get back and forth from work. And they've got Waze. They've got Waze already the app, which has uh, got about 60 million members that are already kind of updating, hey, there's a traffic accident here, um, there's slow traffic here, something like that. And that's how Waze works, right? This is all funneling back to Google Maps. They want to have an experience for people to use Google Maps that can tell them, hey, I'm going to get to work quickest if I go this direction. Help me Waze, help me Google. Um, that's, that's what this is all about for Google. And of course, they get um, a lot of advertising that attaches to that over time, too. Uh, but it's not, really, it's not really a taxi app. It's not the same as, as Uber is, is doing, which Uber is all about the ride sharing. Hey, bring me from point A to point B. Google is more about, hey, we're trying to get people to go all in the same flow. If you can carpool with someone else that's going to the same general location as you are, um, Google is not actually taking a fee from this, at least, at least initially, and they're trying to get the rates as low as possible. So it's an interesting concept. Um, not exactly an Uber killer, but maybe shrinks the market that Uber can participate in um, a little bit smaller. It really is going to be one of the most interesting industries to watch over the next couple of decades. If you just think about the automotive industry writ large, and you in, you include not just the automakers themselves, but you include ride sharing and autonomous vehicles and and all of that, and sort of the, you know, we talk about the battle for the living room, but I think the battle for the car is is going to be as compelling to watch, and for investors. At some point, are going to present some pretty compelling opportunities. And you're seeing in this battle for the car natural oligopolies or even possibly monopolies forming. Um, Google, I'm sorry, Uber claimed that they've got over 80% market share in the United States. That's almost considered a monopoly right now. Lyft has got about 15, 20% apparently. In China, it's completely the opposite. Didi Chuxing, um, which Uber just ceded operations to over in China, had about 80% market share in China. Uber was a distant number two player, but you're seeing you don't need to have 73 different providers of ride sharing out there. You need one that everybody has that's got the most drivers and the most riders. And so when you see these forming, it's really important to get that scale. Uh, Uber's got more than a million drivers in, in 400 different cities across the world. And of course, like we mentioned earlier, you've got these huge legal fees, software development fees. Um, but it's, it is interesting to see this industry progressing the way that it is. I still favor a couple big companies in it. It's just a question of what do the economics look like for investors that are investing in the companies in those, in those industries. What's a company that uh, you're favoring right now? Uh, where are we? Where are we? Are we in the United States? Are we in China? Are we are we somewhere else? Well, since we're in the United States, let's stick with the United States. Yeah, I think Uber's got the clear advantage over Lyft right now in terms of the development. I think that Google will be interesting. I think Uber definitely sees this as a shot across their bow. It's just in San Francisco, though. It's more for a particular niche of, of this, but uh, I think Uber's always gone after the taxi cab market, you know, which has been highly regulated, um, high upfront cost to get the medallion for, for taxis in large cities. And um, they've got the early lead in the largest urban areas, so that's my favorite in the, in the space, I guess. Before we uh, move on, got to mention uh, something we've been working on. And if you are someone who owns an Amazon Echo, like I'm, I'm speaking to you now, um, we have started doing here at the Motley Fool a daily news briefing, exclusively for Amazon. Um, so uh, this is we've got an article up on our site, and we we tweeted it out this morning as well on the Market Foolery feed. Um, but if you're someone who has an Amazon Echo, you can now 
add the Motley Fool to your news briefing, and just uh, I don't I don't have an Echo, but uh, just as with Apple devices, it's Siri. With the Amazon Echo, it's Alexa. You, so now you can say Alexa, tell me the news, and you get a daily update from the Motley Fool. Seven days a week, so um, so check that out if you're if you're one of those people who has an Echo. And I am one. Are you? I do. I've told it to play Market Foolery before, and it just starts streaming your voice in the right. living room. Up to this point, you can play any of our podcasts. Now you can get a daily briefing as well. Um, what what do you use your Echo for? I've I've heard from people who have them in their home. They use them for news. They use them for streaming music. They use them. Uh, some people use them in their kitchen, and they're just you know they're they're asking questions about recipes and that that sort of thing. What do you use yours for? Uh, mostly weather and music at this point. It's getting smarter. I think it's still kind of limited on what it can do, and you have to shape questions or commands in the right way that it can understand you. But mostly, I mean, it's it's tapped into our Amazon Prime account that we can stream music. That anything that's up there in the cloud, yeah. Um, it immediately plays a song if you ask it to. So, yeah. When Jeff Bezos was out in California a couple of months ago at the Recode conference, and Walt Mossberg interviewed him for almost an hour and a half, uh, one of the things Bezos talked about was the work that they're doing on the Echo, and he made headlines when he said that they have a thousand people working on the Echo. Wow. Uh, so, if you just think about all of the things that the Echo device does right now, but clearly they want to do so much more. Um, so anyway, so check it out if you own an Amazon Echo. Uh, last week on Motley Fool Money, one of the stories we talked about was Best Buy's recent quarter, and I, I wanted to get your thoughts on this because Best Buy crushed it last week, stock up twenty percent, and a big part of the story for them in the most recent quarter was wearables. Um, Best Buy sells a lot of big ticket items. Some of them are physically big, um, but wearables are not cheap. And I know Fitbit is a company that you follow closely. Where, where are we now with wearables? Because I was surprised by two things in Best Buy's quarter. One was the fact that they beat by so much. I think expectations aren't particularly high, so that they beat expectations, not particularly surprising. That they destroyed expectations, that was a surprise. But then the wearables part of their story was the other surprise for me. That is interesting. We we follow Fitbit um, much more closely in, in Rule Breakers uh, and Supernova than we do with Best Buy. So, it's interesting to me that Best Buy cited wearables as a reason for crushing expectations. Uh, where we stand, about 20% of the U.S. population today owns a wearable device. And Fitbit is the market leader, uh, even over Apple, over the Apple Watch, in that, in that, and as it looks today. Uh, I think as this evolves, Chris, the, the question on people's minds is, or at least on investors' minds, is what features are you willing to pay for that are incorporated into a wearable device? Um, some of the things that we've talked about in the past, you know, it's been kind of for payments. Do you want to use this when you're checking out of the grocery store? Okay, easy. You scan your watch, whatever. Location maps, GPS. This is big for fitness enthusiasts. Where am I? Where am I going? How fast am I moving? What's my heartbeat? Stuff like that. Um, a big discussion today about wearables uh, in the healthcare industry of if I can have something that, that takes my heart rate and other vital signs, can that... Um, be sent to a doctor's office where they can look at that remotely, rather than me having to drive all the way to the doctor's office for a routine checkup that isn't out of the ordinary. Or something also along the lines of, hey, if there is something that looks out of whack, is that something that says, hey, this guy needs to get, you know, I need to get into the uh, to the doctor's office to see, to, to, to take a look at this. But then the important checkbox of all of these is, do you have the ecosystem that coordinates all of these together? So, you don't have to buy seven world devices, you have one that does everything. Um, and I think that, that that consolidation is what 
Fitbit and or Apple and or Samsung is going to be looking to do in the next couple of years. Fitbit, if you just look at the stock, uh, is trading at roughly a third of its high for the past year on a on a valuation basis. Is it is it cheap? Yes. Okay. <laughs> just like that. Uh, we. I'm sorry, Chris. I, no, no, I, no. I that's fine. Tongue in cheek. Yes, it is. Uh, it is. It was actually in our supernova mission last month. We looked at kind of opportunities per se in the stock market. Fitbit uh, was in that mission of four companies. Supernova Explorer took a look at that. But operationally, they are really doing a good job right now. There is a lot of concern about growing competition, as there should be when you see companies like Samsung, Apple, big companies big checkbooks trying to compete against you. But look at some of the numbers that investors should be paying attention to as well. Uh, Fitz, Fitbits, Fitbits, I'll get there, sorry. That's all right. <laughs> Fitbit's average selling price has increased about 10% year over year, from $89 to about $99. Um, they have now 29 million registered users, which is up 152% year over year. So, people are paying more for these products they're using them and they're spending the time to go online and register them. Um, these are good signs for developing staying power to make sure you're relevant um, in an industry that's still growing and defining itself. Well, and probably pretty good that we are heading into the fall because my assumption is that Fitbit is on that pretty long list of companies that look to the fourth quarter of the year hmm. heading into the holidays as, as an opportunity. You have a couple kids. Do either of them have a Fitbit? Uh, my oldest does. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Last year for for Christmas, got a Fitbit. Christmas wish list to dig in this year. Is it going to make the list? You think? I don't know. I don't know if the other two are are as as into fitness as she is. Yeah, it's going to be big for consumers for the holiday season. Of course, I think there's two other initiatives we we took a look at that I think could be big. One is. Um, the corporate wellness initiatives. Mm-hmm. Uh, you saw Target giving thousands of employees all in one at one time a Fitbit to track their health, and, and that's going to be a lot easier to sell to one big company than to sell to 30,000 em- employees individually. And then the other is going to be insurance. Um, insurance is always trying to get people to be a little healthier, lead an active lifestyle. If they give you a rebate on your health insurance in exchange for, for having a Fitbit and using it, um, that could be an opportunity to scale quickly as well. Simon Erickson. Thanks for being here, man. Thanks, Chris. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So, don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.